At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Habits, Ancient Practices for Today's World, where we'll learn to reject culture's endless stream of quick fixes for God's time-tested truth. Together, we'll rediscover age-old practices that draw us to Him, where true satisfaction awaits. And we're kicking off a brand new series that we're calling Habits. We're looking at some spiritual rhythms that we can build in our lives. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to actually open it with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Uh, I was reminded a few months ago about the power and importance of habits. Um, I had gotten into a bad habit over COVID of uh, just maybe overindulging myself a little bit too much with food. One of my um, fixes that I love is I love a bowl or maybe two of cereal at night. It's just my go-to. And I don't know if you know this, but there's nothing healthy in cereal whatsoever, just wheat with puffed air. But I found myself over time knowing that I kind of needed to you know, maybe adjust some of my eating habits, get back into shape a little bit. And like all of us, it's easy to kind of look for what's, what's the quickest thing that I can do to try to drop some weight, right? And if you've ever been in that place, you know that really there's nothing quick that you can do. It only comes with habit and practice and time and discipline. And so after Easter, I embarked on a rough schedule of eating. Luckily, I have a great wife who cooks well and um, you know, I'm still working on it because we're all a work in progress. But I think oftentimes it's easy when it comes to our spiritual lives to have the same kind of thing. We can look for the quick fixes. What are the little things that I can do? What are the simple, just quick, easy things that I can kind of get a spiritual boost and then move on with my life? But oftentimes those things lead us, leave us unsatisfied in our relationship with the Lord. And so in a world that often tries to sell us quick fixes, what we wanted to do over the next three weeks across all our campuses is take some time and look at some practices that are well-tried, that are like the just solid eating healthy diet, not the diet pill, but the solid eating diet that just helps you to live a healthy, balanced, spiritual life. And so uh, each week you're going to hear kind of a different habit that we engage. And this morning we're going to be looking at the habit of simplicity, But before we kind of jump into what I want to talk about this morning, I want to just pray over our time in the Word together. So would you just pray for a moment with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace and your forgiveness, even as we've just celebrated it and sung about it, as we've remembered the sacrifice that was given in your body and your blood so that we might be free and forgiven. We are eternally and immensely grateful. And thank you, Lord, for your word, which reveals who you are to us, that gives us a foundation that we can stand upon to know you, to encounter you, and to grow to be more like Jesus. So I pray as we engage your word that you would come now and by your spirit move in each mind and heart, either in this room or watching online, to show us more of yourself. Help us to trust more deeply in you. Help us to leave here changed because we've encountered the living God through your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. In 1974, Richard Easterlin, who was at the time a professor of economics 
at the University of Pennsylvania, decided to release a study that he had done on the correlation between economic growth and happiness. Easterlin was curious in observing the economic growth that happened over the 50s, 60s, and early 70s in the nation of America, if that actually correlated to a growth in people's well-being and happiness. Easterlin's study would come to be known as the Easterlin Paradox because what he found in his study was that although economic growth had grown over those several decades, that part of the way through that time, people's happiness actually stagnated and began to decline significantly. Later research in the years following by him and others, Easterlin would note that although there is benefit to some economic growth, that sustained economic growth does not correlate directly to people's well-being or happiness. In fact, in the, one of the Wikipedia articles on Easterlin's paradox, it notes that the trend in the United States over the last several decades has been flat or even slightly negative over seven decades in regards to happiness in which real incomes more than tripled. Now, some researchers have disputed Easterlin's paradox and looked at other things, but over time, what they've continued to find is that although there might be slight increases to happiness in people's economic growth, that overall it does not relate to long-term happiness or well-being. Now, the thing about Easterlin's paradox is it actually challenges one of our well-held cultural stories or narratives. One of the cultural narratives that you and I hear every single day from a thousand different places is that the more we have, the more we buy, the more money we have, the more stuff we possess, the more we do, the more opportunities that we can take advantage of equals a better life. That the good life, the life that we're all looking for, that satisfies our hearts and souls and relationships and life is ultimately found in having more stuff. The average American hears this message anywhere between four and 10,000 times a day with the amount of advertisements that we're bombarded with. And all those advertisements have the same message. You're not happy enough unless you buy this thing. They present to us the idea that ultimately happiness is found in the more that we often consume. The problem is that that just simply isn't true. And long before Easterlin came along with his paradox, Jesus actually pointed this out in one of his most dynamic teachings on the issues of money and possessions and the good life. And we encounter that story in Luke chapter 12. And we're just going to jump in this morning and kind of unpack some things together. So if you have a Bible, we're in Luke 12. We're going to start in verse 13. It starts this way. Someone in the crowd said to him, so Jesus is traveling and teaching during this time. There's a crowd around him and a guy comes to him and says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? 
And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetedness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus gives his disciples in this moment a kind of key principle. A guy comes and asks Jesus to settle the dispute. This isn't an uncommon thing that a man would ask a teaching rabbi to come because oftentimes rabbis would act as arbitrators or mediators in disputes. What's unusual is that the man doesn't ask Jesus for mediation. He comes and demands that Jesus act on his behalf. That essentially Jesus does what he wants him to do. Now Jesus notes that his role is not to come or arbitrate this dispute. He has a greater purpose, so he dismisses the request. But he quickly notes that there's something underlying that this man would come to Jesus and demand him to act on his behalf for the family inheritance. That the man's request and what lied beneath it was a desire for more. And so Jesus gives his disciples a simple instruction or a simple principle. Be on guard against all covetedness. Or another way you could translate that word is greed. Because our lives aren't made up of what we possess. Jesus challenges the idea that we should be careful of desiring more things. And to kind of undergird his principle, Jesus launches into a parable, a story with a point. Look at verse 16. He says, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. In many ways, the parable that Jesus gives here can be a story of our modern Western society and our obsession with stuff. That oftentimes, if we're not careful, we exist in a culture that simply wants to get more and more things. The average American has 300,000 items in their home. That's the average. And we collectively spend, as a society, $1.2 trillion on non-essential goods. Oftentimes, our culture has the mentality like this man. We have our money and our stuff, and we think that it's our right to do with it what we want. Notice in the parable, the repeating I I, or self-centeredness that exists in the man. What shall I do? I have nowhere to store. I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I will store my grains. I will say to my soul. The man's simple idea is, it's my stuff, so why shouldn't I get more of it? And again, we can oftentimes have this same mentality. Do you know that the fastest growing segment of commercial real estate in the last four decades is self-storage facilities in our society? 
In fact, there's enough self-storage square footage in the United States for every single man, woman, and child in our society to stand under a roof in a self-storage facility simultaneously. We can think it's ours. Why not collect more and store it up? But God comes to the man in the story, and he says a startling phrase. He says the word, fool. Now, in our day and age, fool doesn't seem like that big of an insult. But in Jesus' day and age, fool was a huge insult. A fool was someone that had rejected God because the fool says in his heart, there is no God, the Psalms tell us. And the fool had rejected God's ways. When you look at the book of Proverbs, you see the fool as someone who turned from living God's ways in God's world. So God comes to the man and he says, you fool, you've rejected my ways, you've rejected me. And he says he's foolish for two reasons. The first reason is that the man did not recognize that his possessions mean very little in light of eternity. That all that he had did not matter when his soul was required of him. As the old adage goes, he who dies with the most toys still dies. But the second reason that Jesus, or that Jesus references them a fool in the story, is that living for his possessions actually obstructed him from his relationship with God. That's why Jesus concludes the parable with the simple phrase in 21. The one who lays up treasure for, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. See, what the man didn't realize is that his obsession with possessions, with acquiring more, actually hurt his growth and his relationship with the Lord. New Testament professor Daryl Brock says of this specific passage, that Jesus's point is that the seeker of wealth ends up with an empty soul and an empty life. And if we aren't careful, as people who desire to live richly towards God, if we aren't careful about how we think about our money and our possessions, we too can be hindered in experiencing a dynamic relationship with God. Simply put for Jesus, Money and wealth and possessions do not equal the good life. They do not equal a dynamic life rich in experiencing God. And when we make them our goal, they can replace making God our ultimate treasure. So how do we combat this? If money, wealth, and possessions don't equal the good life, according to Jesus, how do we respond? And what does it actually look like to live out the way of Jesus in relationship to our stuff? How can we experience the deeper, richer, better life that God has for us when it comes to things like money, possessions, time, and the material things of life? Well, Jesus is going to present for us an alternative to our cultural narrative. For Jesus... The good life starts and ends with God. He is the source of life. And all that is good is found in him. Therefore, to experience the good life, the life our hearts long for, we must live rich towards God. 
And how does that happen in relationship to our money and our stuff? Well, for Jesus, it comes by embracing the spiritual habit of simplicity. Because this is the thing I want you to understand today. Living simply makes God our treasure. When we strive to embrace the spiritual habit of simplicity, we keep God front and center in our lives and we experience more of him. Let me give you a definition of simplicity to kind of help you understand what we mean by this habit. It's adapted from a book by Richard Foster and Julia Roller in a book they wrote called In a Year with God. And this is how we would define the spiritual habit of simplicity. It's a single-hearted focus upon God and his kingdom, which results in an outward lifestyle of modesty and minimalism. Notice the flow of the definition. It doesn't start with our stuff. It starts with our hearts. Because ultimately, our hearts drive our lives. It's from our hearts that we choose to live. The root of all our behavior and emotions is the heart, what it trusts and what it treasures, theologian Tim Chester says. And so simplicity is when we trust God, when we make him the singular focus of our hearts. And as we do that, it influences the actual way that we live, our lifestyle. Foster, again, goes on to encourage us in this balance. He says, both the inward and outward aspects of simplicity are essential. We deceive ourselves if we believe we can possess the inward reality without its having a profound effect on how we live. We can't have a a simplicity of heart if it doesn't affect a simplicity of life. But he goes on to attempt and arrange An outward lifestyle of simplicity without the inward reality leads to deadly legalism. The idea of just practicing simplicity for simplicity's sake can lead us to be legalistic and not have that singular-hearted focus to God. Jesus' desire is that we live rich towards God, that he is what we passionately pursue and singularly focus our hearts on and let that overflow and affect the way we live. So how do we do this? How do we actually live simply and make God our treasure? Well, Jesus gives us three principles in his following teaching that I think help us to live simply. And we'll go through these kind of quickly. You see the first one come in verses 22 through 28. Look what he says. And he said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? 
The first thing that Jesus teaches us in the call to live simply is that if we are going to embrace a single-hearted focus on God, then we need to reject being anxious. He simply tells his disciples, don't be anxious. See, one of the things that Jesus deals with in his call to simplicity right off the back is one of the greatest hindrances to it, which is anxiety. And the key oftentimes when it comes to anxiety in relationship to money and possessions is simply this, but what if I need it and I don't have it? See, many people can begin to think that the more we have, the more we possess, the more secure and prepared and well-off we'll be. But Jesus challenges that idea and says, don't be anxious about your stuff. If you want a simple test to know if you're anxious about your stuff, pick any room in your house. Think of one in your mind right now. Maybe it's your bedroom, your living room, your kitchen, wherever. And imagine getting rid of 50% of the things in that room immediately. Now, what immediately comes into your mind, right? Even if you go through it, and if you've ever done this practice before, you know, but what if this happens? I might need that pan. But I really need that suit in my closet for the one time a year I wear it. Right? It's easy. We start to think, as soon as we start to think of getting rid of stuff, we immediately start to think, but what if I need that? You see, Jesus recognizes that oftentimes we don't embrace simplicity because we have security in what we have. And so the beginning point he begins to challenge us is our heart. What do we trust? What do we treasure? Jesus reminds his disciples that ultimately God is the provider here. God is the one who gives to his children and he gives them to consider two realities. Unclean birds and lilies of the valley. And he essentially says, if God clothes them and cares for them, won't he care for you? The question that Jesus wants them to wrestle with is what is real and true? The world of my anxiety, the world of security in my stuff, or the world of God's provision. That if God clothes the grass, how much more will he clothe you? And he closes it by giving them a final challenge. Oh, you of little faith. You see, for Jesus, the issue of living rich towards God starts with what we trust. Do we really trust him? Do we trust that he is a provider? Do we trust that we will have what we need, not what we want, what we need? Does God actually love us more than birds and grass? Because if we believe that, then we won't have the sort of anxiety that is beholden in our culture. You know, I get this picture of trust when I look at my kids. I have three children. I have an adopted daughter who's 23, and then I also have two uh, boys, one who's 12 and the other one who just turned 10. And when I look at how my boys worry about food or clothing 
or shelter, I get a picture of the sort of trust I think we're, ha- we're supposed to have in God. Because when it comes to their anxiety over what they have, my boys just simply don't feel anxious. They don't. They don't worry about where their next meal will come from. They don't worry about whether they'll have underwear in the morning or not. The most they worry about is what Minecraft thing they're going to build. And at the end of the day, my boys aren't anxious because they trust us as their parents. And by God's grace, we've been able to provide for them. And when I look at them, I'm reminded that anxiety is removed where there is deep trust. Do you trust that God is a provider? You see, that's the sort of trust that we're called to in our relationship with God. If he's a good father, then he'll give us what we need. Again, not just what we want, but what we need. And if God gave us Jesus, how much more will he give what is necessary for a godly and good life? So Jesus says, don't be anxious. And then he moves to his second call in verse 29. And he says, And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Jesus not only teaches his disciples to not be anxious, but if we're to embrace a life of simplicity, he gets to the core principle, which is simply this. Seek God's kingdom. Don't seek after what the world seeks for, but seek God, his ways, and his kingdom. If we are to experience the good life, then we must make Jesus and his kingdom the ultimate priority of our lives. In a parallel passage to this, in Matthew 6, 33, Jesus adds a qualifier to this statement. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The heart of simplicity is ultimately seeking the kingdom first, to make it the single-hearted focus of our lives. To seek it first is not to seek it and seek other things. To seek it first is to make it our treasure, to make it the thing that we pursue above all else. Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, when it is said, seek first God's kingdom, eternity's goal is established for the human being as that which he should seek. If this is to be done, then the point above all is that the human being not seek something else first. And God promises that if we seek his kingdom first, then all these things will be added. Then he will provide what we need. My wife and I were challenged by this, I remember, several years ago, whether God generally would provide. When our son was first born, I was an intern at a church in my hometown of Akron, Ohio, and my wife was working at a teach as a uh, 
teacher at a school about 40 minutes east of our house. And pretty shortly after we had our son, there was a lot of tension between being an intern and her traveling and having our kid. And it was just like becoming too overwhelming for us. And so we went out one day to kind of just fix and solve the problem. And, and we prayed and we asked the Lord what he wanted us ultimately to do. And we felt like through that time, God was asking Alicia to stop working and to stay home with our son. Now, that's not a blanket statement for everyone in that same situation. That was just what we felt like the Lord was calling us to do in that situation. Now, that was a nerve-wracking thing because, remember, I was an intern, and I was making about $14,000 a year. And when we decided to make this decision and felt like the Lord was leading it to, part of the reason was because we were living in an apartment that had a fixed income. It wouldn't increase. So we knew if we lived tight, we could make it work. About a month or so, maybe less than after we made this decision and my wife told her school that she wasn't coming back, we got a call from the landlord of our house that said, I sold the house, another owner's taking it, and you're going to have to move out. And it was in that moment that the principle that we asked was challenged. God, we thought we were seeking your kingdom. We thought we were following what you wanted us to do. Will you actually provide are we going to be, I don't know where we would be at that point. Well, God was faithful in his provision. Because through a connection through my mom, a church in the area had a missionary house in our city. And they allowed us essentially to stay in their missionary house for that year as an intern at a pay whatever you can afford. And we made it through the rest of my internship by God's grace. And I share that story only to say, I genuinely believe that when we make the kingdom of God our singular focus, God will provide for our needs. When we make God our priority, he will show up. And the question that Jesus wants us to consider is, is God and his kingdom the priority of your life? Is he your single-hearted focus? Because if he is, he will provide what you need. And then finally, Jesus gives us our third principle in verse 32. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The final thing that Jesus calls us to in pursuing simplicity is to give generously. He says to his disciples, fear not. Jesus calls in the call to simplicity. He wants to lead us out of a life of anxiety, faithlessness, worry, and fear. Living simply helps lead us away from those things and towards the good life that is ultimately in God. Seeking the kingdom first not only changes our hearts, but also our lives. And Jesus gets practical by giving his disciples two commands to simply put this into practice. Sell your stuff and give to the needy. If you want a practical way to live simply in your lifestyle, this is it. Don't hoard your stuff, sell it. Don't hoard your money, give it. 
Because a lifestyle of simplicity ultimately leads to giving generously. Not just giving from our excess, but relieving ourselves of our possessions that often are rooted in our heart to pursue greater generosity. And Jesus roots this in his concluding principle from the passage. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice the order. Jesus doesn't say where your heart will be, that's where your treasure will be. He says where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. You see, what we do with our money and our stuff actually guides our heart. When our investment is in the kingdom of this world, it results in heart issues of anxiety and worry and fear. But when our financial investment is in the kingdom of God, when we live for his kingdom and for eternity, we experience freedom and provision and peace and love. And Jesus says, then put your money in those places. William MacDonald in his commentary on Matthew 6.33 says this. He says, this radical financial policy is based on the underlying principle that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your money is in a safe deposit box, then your heart and desire are also there. If your treasures are in heaven, your interests will be centered there. This teaching forces us to decide whether Jesus meant what he said. If he did, then we face the question, what are we going to do with our earthly treasures? If he didn't, then we face the question, what are we going to do with our Bible? If we really believe the principle that Jesus is teaching, then we need to look at our stuff and say, how does God want me to use what I have for his kingdom? How does God want me to use my finances to be more generous? When I look at what I own, what I possess, the stuff I have, what do I need and what do I not need? Are there things I can get rid of to bless someone else or to sell and give that money away? Are there ways within my life group that we can share resources and simplify our lives in order to be more generous as a community? It doesn't need to necessarily be an overhaul of your life starting tomorrow, but if we really believe the principle, there should be action that says, what can I do to relieve myself of my possessions and live more generously towards the kingdom of God? And as we implement this principle, though, we need to be careful not to forget the goal. You see, the reality of the call of the habit of simplicity is to make God your treasure. The habit is not the end. It's just a means to the end. God is ultimately the end. The good life is found in treasuring him and living rich towards him in order to experience all that he is for us. And so when we strive to live simply, it's to make God our treasure. That's why we reject anxiety. That's why we seek his kingdom. That's why we give generously, to treasure God. Simplicity is not the end and cannot be pursued as the end. If it does, we get all sorts of wacky within our practices and our faith. Johnny Ive was the chief design officer at Apple until 2019. And he's known for his, divine, or his design philosophy, which embraced principles of simplicity and beauty. 
It led him in many ways to make some of the most beautiful products technologically that we've seen in the last couple decades. But it also led him to make some of the most horrible Apple products that have been made in the last couple decades, like the hockey puck mouse or the TV remote that's just terrible. Items that were almost completely functionless for the user because they embrace simplicity to an end. In an article in 10 in 2019, tech journalist Charles Arthur highlighted the trouble in Ives' philosophy and approach. He noted that while Ives strove for simplicity and beauty that would lead to great-looking products, it also led him to make products that abandon functionality. And his striving for the purity of simplicity would lead him at times to create products that simply didn't work for people. Ives had forgotten that simplicity is a means in design, not the end of design. God is the end of our pursuit in simplicity. Our desire and call to live simply is so that we can trust and treasure him. We don't pursue simplicity for its own end. We pursue it so that we can live rich towards God. And ultimately, the only way that we can experience richness in God is through Jesus Christ. Because he has made a way in which you and I can be reconnected with the creator God to have a dynamic relationship with him and to experience all that he is starting now in this life and carrying on into eternity. It's in God through Jesus that we find the good life. That's why the good life starts with trusting Jesus Christ and then letting him be our teacher to show us how to live simply so that our heart and lifestyle can be singularly focused on him and his kingdom. So if you want to start to live rich towards God, start with trusting Jesus and then embrace the habit of simplicity. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you this morning that you are a treasure worth pursuing. That you, God, are the satisfier of our souls. We have seen and tasted what the world has to offer. We have returned time and time again to a well where the next product that we buy doesn't satisfy and we go on to the next one and on to the next one. We know that our hearts long for something more. And yet you, God, in your grace, you've shown us that you are that thing. And that in Jesus, you have revealed a way in which we can return to a dynamic relationship with you, where we experience love and joy and peace and goodness. And so I pray this morning, God, that you would help all of us to reject the false cultural narratives that surround us and instead to embrace by faith the way of Jesus. Help us to embrace more deeply in him as our savior and also to follow him as our Lord. To let that change our hearts. Help us to be focused on your kingdom first and to seek it with all we have. Let that overflow into the way we live and may through it all you be glorified in our lives. Even now, as we respond and worship to you, God, would you once again come and meet us 
Show us yourself as the chief satisfier of our hearts. May we praise you in response, I pray. We love you. It's in your name we ask these things. Amen. Thank you for joining us today as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.